And as they do that, you can feel free to open up to the book of Obadiah. Not Obi-Wan Kenobi, as somebody told me this week. Obadiah, good luck finding it. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament with a total of 21 verses. It's after the book of Amos, right before the book of Jonah. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ben. I am one of the pastors here on staff at the Chapel Church. And also for those of you who don't know me, I am not from this area. I did not grow up in Washington. I grew up in the Philadelphia area. And then I lived, my family and I, we lived overseas for a number of years uh, doing missionary work. And so when we moved here three years ago, my wife is from here, so she's, she's used to the rain. But I am, I feel like I'm still adjusting. Uh, and, and the longer I live in Washington, the, the more I'm seeing why everybody gets so happy when the sun comes out. <laughs> it's because nine months out of the year, it's wet and dark. It's just straight up wet and dark. It gets, doesn't get light out till 7, 7.30, in the morning, and at 4.30 it's dark. And it's usually wet and cold. Not today. Today's a little warmer. In, in one sense, moving to Washington changed uh, my relationship with the sun. I no longer take the sun for granted. Um, but I've also noticed that around this time of the year, so January, February, as the wet darkness has just continued and it's not changing, I've noticed that around this time of the year, I find myself staring out the window at the rain and somewhat daydreaming about what it would be like if the sun came out and how nice it would be. In one sense, I hope the sun will come out because I do believe the sun is shining. The sun is always shining. It's just above the clouds. And my hope is that, as sometimes happens in the afternoon in Washington, the sun burns through the clouds and comes out for about 30 minutes before it gets dark and wet and rainy again. But I have this hope that the sun will come out. And yet my circumstances, living in Washington, mean that the sun actually coming out feels pretty hopeless at times. <laughs> and as we head into the book of Obadiah and continue our sermon series in the Minor Prophets, where we're, once a month we're taking a whole Minor Prophet and doing the whole book in one sermon, this is the sort of situation that Obadiah speaks into. It is not summertime for Israel. It is January in Washington, except it's a whole lot worse than that for Israel. Their enemies have beat them down. God's promises to this nation, to his people, seem to be failing. And so in one sense, the sun is far from shining, and things seem utterly hopeless. And yet God uses Obadiah, and my hope is that we'll see this this morning, he uses Obadiah to remind his people, to remind Israel that though their circumstances seem to claim that God has abandoned them, and though their circumstances seem to say that God's promises have failed, and though their circumstances seem to prove that they are hopeless, their circumstances do not dictate reality. They have hope, and they should hope in God. And so our big idea this morning for us today, and then what I believe is the call of Obadiah on us as God's people this morning, is this. 
hope in the one who brings your enemies down and raises you up. Hope in the one who brings your enemies down and raises you up. So my hope is that we'll see that Obadiah will make this clear, this exhortation, this command to hope in God. And and the reasons that we have to hope in God are these two things. He is going to bring your enemies down, and he is going to raise you up. And so we're going to look at, those are the two big points of the sermon. God bringing down and God raising up. And so the first point that God brings your enemies down I'm just giving you fair warning. This is going to be the longest point of the sermon. And we're going to read the most, the largest chunk of the letter right now. So we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Hear God's word to you this morning. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the, the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. For The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Pretty intense, huh? So this book begins with what I'm going to call a lot of divine smack talk, trash talk. God is up in heaven saying, Edom, I am going to bring you down. So the question that we have to ask as good readers is, well, uh, why is Edom going to be brought down? And then two, who in the world is Edom, right? So the reason why the nation 
of Edom or the Edomites are going to be brought down becomes really clear actually in verse 10, verses 10 and 11. Here we see that that Obadiah claims that Edom has committed violent crimes against Jacob, that is, against God's people, the Israelites. And so while we're not entirely sure uh, what historical event this refers to, this most likely refers to when God punished the nation of Israel and sent her into exile by the hands of the Babylonians. And then at that time, it would seem that what happened is Israel's neighbors, the Edomites, seem to have used this opportunity to take advantage of Israel, to take advantage of God's people. And what makes this even more heinous, what makes this even worse, is the fact that, as we see in verse 10, Edom is technically related to Israel, their, their family. You see that in verse 10. It says, because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob. And this starts to get at, then, the, the second part of our question, well, who in the world is Edom? Who, who is this nation? If, if you know anything about the, about the biblical story, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God calls a man, his name is Abraham, and he makes some really important promises to Abraham. He basically tells him, listen, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Basically, I'm going to destroy your enemies. And I'm going to bring blessing back to the whole world through you, Abraham, and through your offspring, through the nation that I'm going to bring about through you. So, so in one sense, God is committed to Abraham and then to Abraham's whole family, to the Israelites. Well, two grandchildren of Abraham end up being the names Jacob and Esau. And if we know the story, God elects or he chooses that his promises that he gave to Abraham would continue through Jacob and not Esau. And then this, what this does, in essence, is it creates this massive tension between these two brothers, which lasts throughout their entire lives, and then it lasts through the lives of their descendants, the Israelites and the Edomites. The Israelites are the offspring of Jacob, and the Edomites are the offspring of Esau. So this has bearing on our discussion in Obadiah, because in Obadiah's time, right, Israel was given all these promises— Jacob, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you land. I'm committed to you. But Obadiah is writing at a time when who seems to be the chosen one? Who's, who seems to be blessed here? Sure not Israel. And it sure looks like Esau or Edom has swapped places with him. So I don't think it's too hard to imagine the Israelites asking, God, what's up? Like, you, you said you chose us. You said you would curse those who curse us. You, what in the world is going on? Where are you? And why aren't you doing anything about this? Edom has come and hurt us. They've destroyed us. They've pillaged us. They've taken advantage of us. Why aren't you doing anything? All Israel can see are the clouds. And this is where Obadiah comes in to remind them that what their circumstances would claim does not actually match reality. What the clouds would tell them about the shining of the sun is just not true. In verses 1 to 9, 
If you remember, they, they make really clear that just because nothing has been done yet does not mean that God is indifferent towards Edom mistreat, Edom's mistreatment of Israel, right? In, in verses 1 and 9, we see it's pretty clear God is going to bring it down on Edom. He is going to take away the clouds that are hanging over Israel. The, the best summary, which I'll reread, I, I think is verse 4. So before this is talking about Edom's pride, they, they literally dwelt in a region that was very mountainous, so they felt protected militarily. And God says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. But as we read this section, it becomes clear that like, God isn't doing this just because he's some divine meanie up in heaven, some divine tyrant who's just out to get everybody. Verses 15 and 16 make really clear that God is going to bring down judgment on his enemies, on Israel's enemies, because God is the king over all the earth, to whom all the nations and all people are accountable. In essence, verse 15, if, if we go back there, it says... For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So here, Obadiah has moved from one nation to all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Basically, this world, just to make clear this morning, this world is God's house. And everybody who has broken the house rules, which is everybody, they're going to be called to give an account to the master of the house. But not only that, right? So it's not just that God, like, he's not doing this just because he's king overall and everybody's accountable to him. But also the way that God is going to enact this judgment is just, right? Verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. The punishment will fit the crime. The sin of pride, the sin of injustice, the sin of rejecting the king, the punishment will fit the crime. So Obadiah comes in to God's people and says, remember, because God is king and because God is just, God's judgment on Edom is going to happen. And by the way, it functions as a foretaste of the final judgment day, the final capital big D day of the Lord, when the king comes back with a sword to rightly bring down all who have not bowed the knee to him. That is intense. Happy Sunday, everybody. But here's here's how this is good news. If you are a Christian today, brothers and sisters, if you are a part of God's people, the future judgment that will come, that we are still waiting for, the judgment that will come on God's enemies is a reason for you to place your hope in God. The coming judgment means that whatever evil that you face today as a child of God, sin and its tyranny, the devil and his deceptions, the nations and their rebellion, sneering at, at your workplace because you follow Jesus, all of your enemies, Obadiah claims, they're going to come to an end on the day of the Lord when Christ comes back. And I think for us, placing our hope in God in light of God's seeming inaction, God is always active. 
They think it's, to the Israelites, it looks like God is not doing anything about this injustice. But for us, placing our hope in God in the middle of that sort of a situation with the clouds hanging over our heads, that looks like persevering in the face of your enemies being alive and seeming to be winning. Hoping, placing our hope in God in the midst of that looks like we are holding out. It's holding out. It's, it's persevering. It's holding to the one who claims that vengeance is his. Hoping in God in the midst of the evil that we live in and wondering, is God going to do anything? It looks like trusting God to do what he has promised to do and to be who he has said that he will be. It looks like holding out as we live in a broken world with clouds constantly hanging over our heads. Brothers and sisters, God is just. And the part of the message of Obadiah is that he is going to bring your enemies down. For God's people, that is a reason to hope in the midst of feeling utterly hopeless. That is good news. But for some here, I could also be the bearer of bad news, right? If, if you're here today and you are not a part of God's people, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, or you're just tinkering with this and trying, trying, maybe trying to figure out this Jesus thing, that God is just and that you are accountable to him and that he will one day call you to account, that is probably, or at least it should be, the most terrifying reality in the world. Judgment Day not only speaks to the seriousness of our sin as humans, it not only speaks to the seriousness of our rebellion against God, but it also speaks to humanity's greatest need, your and mine greatest need. We're, we're going to read verses 17 through 21 a little bit later, but, but here we find out that, the, that ultimately the way to escape the judgment that is coming on all the nations is to be a part of God's people. And the wonderful news for you this morning in your terror as the chills go down your spine as you hear about the coming judgment of God and that you are accountable to him, the wonderful news is that the gateway is open for all people to become a part of God's people. For people to move from the nation's to being a part of God's people. And the way that that is open is because Jesus, God's very own son, came and he lived a perfect life and died in our place for our sin to take the judgment that we deserve on himself so that if you trust in him, you will be saved. You will be adopted into God's family. That's how, if you are not a Christian this morning, the message of Obadiah becomes really good news for you. So as we move on from verses 1 to 9, and we get to verses 10 through 14, we see that we're still talking about God bringing it down, right? God's going to bring down your enemies. He's going to bring down his enemies. But we start to see in verses 10 through 14 that this has another side to it. It's not just that God is going to bring an end to your enemies, but we also see that it means that God sees and he cares about your pain. 
in, in, in the aftermath of Edom's treatment of Israel, I, I think it's understandable that, that, we would, that, that we could see the Israelites saying, not just God, why aren't you doing anything? But God, do you even see what's going on? Like, do you see the mess that we're in? Do, do you even care? Are you even concerned for us? And in verses 10 through 14, we see that God lists out what seemed to be all the things that, e- that the Edomites did to the Israelites. So they're, they're not just gloating over them. They're not just prideful over them. But then they're also raiding their cities. And then as the Israelites were fleeing, possibly from the Babylonians as they were taking them into exile, the Edomites would snatch up their refugees on the road and take them captive. So the fact that God lists this out, imagine that you are an Israelite hearing this message, this horrible, and you have in your mind this recent event that has happened to your people, and God comes in and says, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. It becomes really obvious to you that God sees. He sees everything that was done to you. But then we also see, and I hope you noticed it as we were reading, he says, do not. And then he says, do not do something. He says it eight times in the span of four verses. Do not. And it makes the the message crystal clear to us. God is saying to the Edomites, get your hands off. Don't even think about it. The point is, God not only sees what has been done to his people, but he he really cares about what has been done to them. And and I think for us, it's, it's easy to feel in the midst of adversity that God has all of a sudden become apathetic towards us, right? If God really loved me, then this thing would not have happened. But Obadiah comes in and he speaks right into the middle of that existential question and makes it abundantly clear that even though we face adversity, the fact that God is going to bring down justice one day means that God cares about us. It means that God cares about us. Just because you face evil does not mean that you cannot claim, or sorry, just because we face evil does not mean that you can claim that God is not good and that he does not care about you. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's actually really hard for us to try to fit those two things together. But I think we have lots of examples from our lives that show us that we know that this is true. Adversity doesn't, doesn't exclude care, right? Th- th- think about sports coaches. Pastor Phil coaches soccer. Pastor Stephen tries to coach basketball sometimes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just relaying what he's told me. Love you, brother. I don't coach anything because it would just go real bad, all right? I'm, I'm even worse. <laughs> Whatever the sport, coaches put their team through the ringer in practice, right? In the moment, it seems hard to the team to endure the exercises to, en- to endure the suicide runs, to endure all the, the push-ups and the, and the burpees and all the things that you have to do to train for the game. It seems unnecessary. It seems harsh. But if you have a good coach, in no way would you ever look at him and go, 
you're doing this because you're malicious. You would look at that coach and go, you are doing this because you care. I can never say that you're putting us through the ringer because you don't care. And, and, and I think that's just one example. We could look at the military. We could look at child rearing. I could think about putting my kids to bed. They think that is the most adverse situation in the world, and it creates adversity for everybody in our house. You are going to stick me in a dark room and leave? But I know it's because I care for them. Man, if those kids don't get sleep, nobody's happy. We, we understand the concept that adversity does not exclude meaningful care for somebody. And if that can be true for us in our finite situations, and if we can understand that as mere humans, how much more can that be true for God? Obadiah's point here is that though our experiences and our circumstances may argue that God does not care about us, that is nothing but a lie. God sees you, and he is aware of your pain, and he cares about you. And since this is true, Obadiah says, you should place your hope in God. Which I think as we face pain then in this life, placing our hope in God as the one who sees and as the one who cares means that in the midst of life's hard and adverse circumstances, we run straight to him and not away from him. It means that when you get the call from the doctor or when you start plunging into the depths of despair, it means when the clouds get real thick and heavy above your head, it means that you start crying out to God and you lift your voice to him. You express to him your pain. You express the words of the psalmist, How long, O Lord? And you ask him for relief. You ask him for deeper trust. You ask him to strengthen you through it. The fact, brothers and sisters, that God is going to bring it down. The fact that he is going to bring down your enemies is a reason for hope because justice is coming and because it means that God cares for us. But Obadiah does not stop there. He doesn't stop with God just taking away the clouds. He reminds us that the sun will shine. An eternal summer is coming. And we start to see this in verses 17 through the end of the book. Let's read this together. But in Mount Zion, verse 17, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So when we get to verses 17 and 18, 
the, the imagery starts to take a subtle shift from judgment to establishment for God's people. Or, as I'm saying, God bringing down to God raising up. Whereas judgment will come on all of God's enemies, including Edom, there are people who our text claims in verse 17, and this is presumably God's people, who will escape this judgment and be with the Lord in Mount Zion, where God will dwell with his people. And if you notice in verse 17, it talks about, there's a lot of language of possession, of getting something. It says, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The point is, what has been taken from them in exile? What has been taken from them from enemy nations like Edom, they're going to get back. And we know that this refers to the idea of the promised land in particular as we venture down into verses 19 through 21. And as we read that, you'll notice it gives a lot of geographical markers, but it's basically giving you a compass. It's basically saying all the land to the north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem, Israel, God's people, they're going to get it back. And then the, 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 the conclusion of this, the result of this, is then verse 21, God establishing his kingdom through his people. So if, if we take all this rhetoric about promises and possession and getting stuff back and, and language of hope, and then we think about the promises that God gave to Abraham, if you remember earlier, the promise of inheriting the land is a pretty big one. It's, it's a pretty big theme as you follow the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And you could easily imagine how the Israelites, as they've lost everything, they're not even in their land anymore, and now the Edomites attacking them, you could easily see how they could look back at these promises that God gave to Abraham and go, man, it sure doesn't seem like this is ever going to happen. We feel pretty dang hopeless. God said the sun would shine, but right now our weather app, it all, all it shows is clouds. <laughs> That's basically their life. But now we have Obadiah coming in as a new weatherman, right? He comes in with a different forecast, and he says, Hey guys, guess what? God has not forgotten his promises. God will bring his people back to the land, and he will raise them up and raise up his kingdom forever. And so then the call of Obadiah on God's people is, a, is again a call to place their hope in God because God does not forget his promises. Obadiah calls them to place their hope in God because God is faithful to his word, even though their circumstances would claim otherwise. And I think this tension is something that we are kind of accustomed to as Christians, isn't it? The tension of having received great and powerful promises from God, but they're not yet fully fulfilled. I think this is something that we experience all the time. When Jesus came, he came announcing what? He came announcing, he said, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And man, if you read Jesus' life in the, in the gospel accounts, it sure looked like the, 
the kingdom was at hand. God's enemies are being judged. Jesus is casting out demons, healing the sick, the lame are walking. And then Jesus dies. And you're left with the question, wait, 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 like, I, I thought this like, kingdom thing was happening. Like, what in the world, God? I thought you said this was going to, like everything was showing us that this is going to happen. I thought the sun was going to shine again. And so maybe we would think, well, is this going to happen when Jesus rises from the dead? Jesus rises from the dead, and this is exactly what the disciples thought in Acts 1. If you go read Acts 1, one of the first questions that they asked Jesus in Acts is, is now the time, Jesus? Like, are you going to do it? Are you going to, are you going to bring your kingdom now? Are you going to establish it? And Jesus again surprises them and says, you know what, guys? The when is actually none of your business. I've got work for you to do. I need you to go out and share the gospel with everyone. God is holding off that final day so that people can be saved. So that maybe some of you in this room who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus would come to know him this morning. But Jesus didn't leave it there. He said, I will come back. I'm going to come back in the manner in which I left. Jesus ascended to heaven and he says, I'm going to come back. And I will make all things right. Brothers and sisters, just as Israel waited for the end of their exile, for restoration, which eventually did come in part, God did bring them out of Babylon and back into their land. What we see through the life of Jesus as we are still waiting for him to come back, is that this passage in Obadiah looks way beyond the historical nation of ethnic Israel to the final day, to our hope, when Jesus will split the clouds and come back fully and finally to raise up his people. An eternal summer is coming. But in the meantime, the question again is, so we're pushed to place our hope in the one who raises up. And the question is, what does that look like? What does that look like? And I think one of the most obvious answers to that question is it looks like holding on for dear life to God's promises. Brothers and sisters, this is why we gather every single week. This is actually one of the reasons why we sing the songs that we sing. We sing songs, if, if you read Colossians 3, 16 and 17, what Paul makes clear is that the church, the church is commanded to sing, but we're commanded to sing something specific. We're commanded to sing God's word to each other. And so we see there that it's not just singing praises to God, although that is 100% true, but we see that singing in, in corporate worship functions as a teaching mechanism to teach and admonish one another with God's word. So when you are standing here proclaiming back to me and to each other, this is one of the reasons sometimes I'm like, man, if we could like face each other a little bit more to see each other singing. The point is you are not having just a me and Jesus moment. That is not what we're doing. We are having an us and Jesus moment. And we are having a moment where we are reminding each other of the truths of God's word 
so that we would hold fast to what he has given us and we would not let that go, that we would hold to the God who is faithful and keeps his promises. And so when I see some of you proclaiming back to me the truth that Jesus is coming back and that we are to hold to him and that we have a firm foundation and that the one who finds repose in Jesus will not be abandoned. And I know some of the things that you are going through in your life and some of the clouds that are hanging over your head. Man, what an encouragement. What an encouragement to me to hold, oh man, I better hold fast. Guys, that's, what we're, that's, 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 that's what's going on. Holding fast to God's word looks like gathering regularly with God's people. It looks like immersing yourself daily in God's word. It looks like maybe joining a Bible study. It looks like when you have a friend in the church, when you have a brother or sister who is going through something hard, sending them a text with encouraging words, reminding them of the truth of God's word. The, the, the point is, Obadiah claims God is faithful. Though he doesn't say those exact words, that's exactly what he's saying. God has not forgotten his promises, and that is a reason to place our hope in him. I'll end with this. As we finish looking at the book of Obadiah, I, th- I think a common theme and something that starts to become clearer as we go through this book is that this tension of being called to hope in the God who brings down our enemies and raises us up, the call to hope in him in the midst of circumstances that seem utterly hopeless, that tension is actually just normal. That is normal for the people of God. That's what having faith looks like. Living with hope in the midst of seemingly hopeless situations. That is the walk of a Christian. This is just normal Christian life stuff. But Obadiah comes to God's people to remind us of some of the reasons that we have to hope. We don't just hope generically, just hoping that everything's going to work out, just hoping against all hope, just wishful thinking. Obadiah gives us some concrete reasons to hope. He makes placing our hope in God plausible. And the point is, you are not a fool for placing your hope in God. Though our life looks like January in Washington, the sun is shining above the clouds and it will break through. And so the message of Obadiah is, well then, place your hope in the God who brings his enemies down and raises you up. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good, you are gracious, you are kind. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we can hope in you in the midst of adversity. Would you help us as your people to hope in you? We pray that in your name. Amen.